albeit, as people who've read ahead will have noticed, Hebrews chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore. So we'll probably be looking back again next time. So we know how to handle the word, therefore. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. I'm going to read from verse 32 to the end of the chapter. And what more can I say? What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The writer of the Hebrews has spent some time highlighting many different examples. Look, as God worked in this person, as they believed him, by faith, look what happened. By faith, look what happened. But this person and that person, they've all done these different things, and yet always, only, and always, it was by faith. It was by faith. It was by believing God. I believe for us as a church, this is coming at an apt time. If you were with us at prayer meeting on Friday or if you were at the weekend away, you would have heard Dan talking about Elijah going, he was discouraged. But yet God calls him to look again at, his, at him. Come, come see Elijah, what are you doing here? At the prayer meeting on Friday, there was a real sense of we're in a battle that we want to press in. God has got more for us, but there's a battle raging. Joe Barker bought what I thought was a very poignant, very apt, very timely picture. He was talking about a program he'd seen about uh, people digging for gold in Alaska. And they were up there on a mountain with their JCBs and they're digging holes out of this mountain. They're looking, looking for gold. And they're digging away and they're pressing in, looking for this treasure that they, 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 they believe is there. Then they see there's a storm coming on the horizon. There's a storm coming in and, and the reaction in the program is, look, we're up a mountain in Alaska. If we stay out here in the storm, we're going to die. We've got to turn back now, otherwise we're going to be stuck here. We're going to be trapped. 
and they turn back and leave the treasure that they were looking, looking to find. And the encouragement was that the storm may be coming. The storm may be there, and yet we're pressing on. We're pressing in to what God has got for us and what God has said, there is more, there is more. To press on in faith and remember who it is that we are following. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, he's talking about, uh, I'm suffering in this particular way and yet I know whom I have believed. I know whom I believed. I know he can keep me safe. I know he will keep safe the deposit that is in me and see me through. And we see as we turn to this end section of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer begins this way, what more shall I say? What more shall I say? I've laid out the evidence. I have made my case. Chapter 10, verse 39, he started off, but we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And he's come through this great catalogue of examples. Look, by faith, by faith, by faith, all this has happened. And he concludes in verse 39 and 40 of chapter 11. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And we see in that great moment, we have been caught up in something incredible and massive. This is the plans and purposes of God. That we can look at all these different examples and yet then we see we're caught up in the same story. And only, only now and only as Jesus will come again will we see the completion and the fullness of everything that was promised. And yet we're caught up in it all. We're caught up in the same journey. This is what this is all about. We're those who have faith, who have been saved by his grace and called into this massive story and into the massive plans and purposes of our gods. And the author's insistent that his readers are captivated by this wonderful truth. This is what we're called to. Called to see I am his and he is mine. He has bought me with a price. God, the gracious Father, who is faithful, who is holy, who is awesome, who is utterly worthy. He calls us and says, trust me, believe me, follow me. This is massive. And we're called, and the author is, is insistent on pressing this point. Trust him no matter what. Trust him no matter what, because he is worth it. He is worth it. I'll probably repeat that several times today. If you pick up nothing else today, know this. Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. And the writer says, what more shall I say? Look, I could go on. This story goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop with the exodus, with this victory at Jericho that he's just talked about. It doesn't stop there. It goes on. I haven't got time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, and on and on and on through the Bible and through now. We could look back and even look through history up until this point. Look at what God has been doing. I could go on telling these stories all the way through to us, caught up in the same promises. 
and the same plans and purposes of God's. What more can I say? I've told of many. There's this unending list that I could point to of men and women who knew God and believed him and saw God do incredible things. What more can I say? These people represent this great cloud of witnesses that he'll go on to talk about in Hebrews 12. Out of their knowledge of God and of his unfailing love and faithfulness, they recognize this is God's. We're following God. We, we, we have the privilege of being caught up into his plans and purposes. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to live for him. Nothing else matters. It's only him. As Paul declares in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, what? In view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's in view of his mercy. In view of seeing... This is God. This is what God has done. This is who God is. We're pressing in. We're giving him everything. We're trusting him, believing him, and living by faith. This wonderful truth that the God of the universe has won us and bought us with a price, a great price. He's poured out his lavish mercy on us. God has. And he's the one who calls us into a life of faith following him glorious, exciting, wonderful truth. And this is what we're called to. An adventure of faith, knowing God and following him. One who is utterly worth it. It's so exciting and yet the writer knows he needs to make this point. He knows he needs to press it home because it's exciting, it's wonderful. We're called into the plans and purposes of God. But he knows by faith, is not comfortable. It's exciting, it's wonderful. This is God we're serving, but it's not comfortable. And as he goes on to talk in, the, in this summarized way of these others, named people, others who are unnamed, we first see a great picture of heroic victories. Let's look in verse 32 onwards. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. We see these great victories. We see people who were weak, but their weakness was turned to strength. We see people leading great armies and, and seeing great victories. And we can imagine what he's alluding to, or some of what he's alluding to. We can picture Gideon having his army whittled right down and leading this, these 300 men into battle against the, the, the mammoth ranks of the Midianites. And yet God providing the victory. We can think of many stories of David and his mighty men winning battles, going forth, seeing great things happen. 
We can think of Daniel in the lion's den. He goes into the lion's den and he's there all night and yet he comes out unharmed. Or we could, look, we could think of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego coming through the fiery furnace. Again, not only unharmed, but there was not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. Incredible victories. Incredible victories and seeing God break in in, in wonderful ways. Praise God. We see his outstretched arm here and we say, yes, amen. His power bringing victory, but there is nothing comfortable here. It's not, none of these situations are comfortable situations. We look on battles. We look on facing lions. We look on furnaces. We're looking at situations where people recognize they are weak, and yet their weaknesses turn to strength. This isn't comfortable. We see storms, frankly. And we must, we need to take care as we read. And as we read stories, always through the Bible, knowing the end from the beginning of each story. And we're rightly encouraged and stirred by them. Look what God did. Look how God broke in. But it's so easy to gloss over and just see the outcome. Just see the victories. Remember if... Remember with me the Israelites and their roller coaster of an adventure. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They're slaves. They are they're under the persecution of the Egyptians. The Egyptians have got them. They're forced into this slave labor of, of making bricks and building and just endless slog. Moses appears. God sends Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes things harder. Moses has come. God sent Moses. And Pharaoh makes things harder. It gets worse. It gets worse. And then we see over the, the story. Moses keeps going back to Pharaoh. And God sends plagues. Pharaoh keeps saying no. But not only does he say no, actually Pharaoh at different points, he's, Moses has gone to him and the plague's raging and, and Pharaoh's like, okay, take the plague away and then you can go. Great, finally we're on our way. We're going out. God's going to bring us out. God's going to bring us out. And the plague goes. And Pharaoh turns around and goes, no. Ugh. And Moses goes back again, and there's another plague. And Pharaoh says, no. And there's another plague, and Pharaoh says, okay, take the plague away, and then I'll let you go. And the plague goes. We're going, we're going. And Pharaoh says, no. Can we just get our heads round for a minute? The, this isn't, hear me right on this, this isn't just a, look, God brought the victory. They're, they're journeying in faith. This is, this is tough. And yet we know what a glorious victory God brings. God brings them out and then brings them through the Red Sea. And yet, in all of it, there's this roller coaster of emotions, potentially. This is hard. Pharaoh keeps saying yes, then no, then well, I suppose so. No. And then finally, get out, go. We need to be reminded as we look at all of this 
We're not just seeing great immediate victories of God breaking in. And we need to be reminded as we read, the goal that we live for is not a life of ease and comfort. We're called to a journey of faith. You see, ease and comfort are not what is promised. You see, we can so easily get a false perspective or understanding and we get stirred by these examples. Yes, God, come and move in power. And amen, come and move in power, God. But in the meantime, we're unprepared that by faith is not comfortable. You see, I'm living by faith can subtly become in our minds, I'm trusting God that things will always be okay. Or things will always be like they are now. Or... If I trust God, everything will always be fine. I'll never face any problems. And if trouble hits, well, what's gone wrong? What's gone wrong? You see, in the midst of trial, it is tough. It is painful. It doesn't always make sense. But we see here and throughout Scripture, we live by faith. We trust God in all things. So subtly we can get fixed in our minds that that means God will always come through for me in the way I want when I want it. And if we get sucked into that way of thinking, it's so easy to be thrown off course and to be caught. What's going on? Now, Don't get me wrong, what's going on can often be a right response. I don't know God, I need to cry out to you. I need to cry out to you. And yet we need to get our eyes fixed on him. Timing in particular can be so easy to be thrown off on timing. Wouldn't God have done something by now? If this was the right way to go, wouldn't God have done something by now? Surely we would have seen something happen. But our faith is not God will always come through for me in the way I want, when I want it. But I know God, and I know that he knows best. And I know that he is good. And I know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. There is a promise we can rely on in scripture. Romans 8, 28. He is with me, and whatever the circumstances, I believe him. I will trust him, and I will worship him. And yes, I will keep crying out, God, would you break in here? Will you break in? But as we do so, let's also pray that we come to join Paul as he speaks in Philippians 4, verse 12. As he says, that I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things, all this through him who gives me strength. And that we keep seeing him. That we keep our eyes fixed on him and see actually in your strength, God, I can journey on. We see through all these stories, this is costly. They're costly situations. We see battles were fought. We see people escaping from the sword from fire, from lions. We see people being brought back 
from the dead. Hallelujah. What incredible thing. But someone died. This was a painful time. And yet then God brings life. Incredible. It's so wonderful, but stop and think of the situations. You see, living by faith takes us out of our comfort zone. Because by faith, living by faith recognizes I'm not in control. I am reliant on God, on God's resources, on God's timing, on the reality that God knows best. It can take us to places where we are powerless, where we are weak. And actually, we're completely reliant on God to move. Whether that's crying out to him for finance, for provision, for for healing, for salvation, for, for change in situations that are just tough, horrendous, really hard times. But that's what we're called to, a life of faith, trusting God in everything. And it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable thing. And yet it's good. It's better. It's life in all its fullness. Trusting him, following him. You see, even hearing this morning about connect groups can be unsettling. Change is coming. Core groups might not be the same, but they won't be the same. People will be doing connect groups and different things will be happening. All sorts will be going on. For some of us, that might be more unsettling than for others. But it's true, it's not comfortable. And yet, we want to press on in faith. We want to see people come to Alpha. We want to see people connected in with us. We want to see uh, all these different things happening and God moving amongst us. But in all these things, it can be uncomfortable. By faith is not comfortable. So the writer is so, so keen that we understand that we know him. That we know him in whom we believe. That we trust him, that we we get to know him more and more. Believe God, believe God by faith, by faith, by faith. Not somehow rustling up more effort to kind of, well, I'm supposed to feel better at the moment. Because I'm supposed to know that it doesn't always go right. No, we need to see him more clearly. Our faithful, holy, merciful, powerful Saviour and Lord. But we're called to trust him, no matter what. Because he is worth it. And you see, even more so, he realises... I need to make this clear because by faith isn't comfortable. But he realizes that by faith really can be really uncomfortable. Because you see, we can get another false perspective if we just look at those verses we've just read. From verse 32 to about 35. You see, faith is uncomfortable, yes. But look we always eventually see the outcome that we're looking for. They conquered kingdoms. They were powerful in battle. They routed armies. They were tough battles, big threats. But ultimately, they won. They saw the dead raised to life. Wow, this was hard. This came to the point of death, and yet God raised them from the dead. But you see, as we read on, we see that actually no, 
we don't always, in an earthly sense, see the ending that perhaps we would have thought was the right one. Or the, the ending that we would have wanted. Let's read on from verse 35. You see that glorious truth. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Suddenly we see a very different picture. Torture. Death. Death by stoning or being sawn in two. They're gruesome, horrible pictures. People living destitute. People refusing to be released because so imprisoned and continually imprisoned. But we can look and we can see this and if our eyes are just slightly off focus, it can cause us big problems. If ultimately, subtly, our faith is just in the wrong thing. If our faith is not in the fact that we have a God who is wonderful and faithful, and actually our faith is just subtly in the, I know God could do this. I know God will do this. That's the thing I'm trusting. I'm trusting in that outcome. Praise God, the wonderful truth is God can do that. And God is completely able. But our faith is in him, not in the outcome itself. Because if our, if our faith gets drawn to the outcome that we're hoping for, and if and when disaster strikes, we can think, what have I done wrong? Or even, look how God's let me down. God just didn't come through this time. And you see, our author is really deliberate here. This is faith. Trusting God in all circumstances. We hear Paul's words again from Romans 8, 28. I know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. In all things. Even when it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. To reflect again, we mentioned briefly Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You see that likely reference to them as those who quenched the fury of the flames. But see what they say in Daniel chapter 3. We see men who are fixed on the fact that how wonderful it is that we get to serve and believe our God. Whatever happens. Daniel 3, verse 16. They're replying to King Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not... We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are 
utterly reliant on God. They see he is worth everything. And he is able to bring us out. And they're fully in belief he's going to bring us out. But even if he chose not to, even if he chose not to, he is still worthy of everything. This is our privilege and our joy that we would go even into the flames for him, even if we wouldn't come out alive. Because he is worth it. Even if not, we will serve the Lord. In the mid-19th century, there was a, a missionary called John Patton who went to the island of, or the group of islands of Vanuatu in the Pacific Ocean. And as he was preparing to go, he was at a group of, I think, different ministers who were meeting in England, and a Mr. Dixon exploded. The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! Now, in fairness to Mr. Dixon, previous missionaries had been eaten by cannibals. So he had a point. But, he, but it was a complete cry of fear. Don't go there. You shouldn't go there because the risk is too high. Mr. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He got hold of, there could be the ultimate cost. I could arrive on this island and actually the, the natives may just take hold of me and decide this is it. But this is what God has called me to. And whatever the cost, whatever it means, whether God rescues me from that or not, I am going for him. And amazingly, there was, it was a great fruitful trip as well. But he was willing to go. He was willing to go. He, he is worth it. He is worth it. It's my great privilege to go where he's called me to go. Whatever happens, whatever the cost. We see Paul talks about, and he can talk in very specific terms, about that God, that he was given this thorn in the flesh. And he can say very specifically, so I, so I would not become conceited. I was given this thorn in the flesh. And we're not going to speculate on what the, what the thorn was. And what that actually meant. But as he's talking about it in 2 Corinthians 12. He makes this wonderful statement. If I can find it. And I think I'm in the wrong chapter. Oh no, there we are. 2 Corinthians 12. I didn't write a verse down. Somewhere here. Therefore, in order to get verse seven, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And he says this three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, and he got this answer My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And as I said, we're not going to speculate on what Paul was talking about in terms of this thorn. But he heard from God, whatever, whatever the situation, my grace is sufficient for you. God's answer may be to change the circumstances. God's answer might be to say, my grace is sufficient. And in all things, in everything, we can know, God, your grace is sufficient. I will trust you. I will trust in your timing. I will trust in your answer. I will trust you. I'll keep crying out. But I know you are sufficient. I'll tell one more story. There's a woman in the 18th century called Marie Durand. People who were at school of leadership a few weeks ago will know where I'm getting all these stories from. Um, after the, uh, the Reformation and, and the, the, the ministries of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and particularly John Calvin in this case, there were many in France in this case who were saying, no, we, we've turned away from what the established or the Catholic Church was saying at the time. No, we're believing justification by faith. We're believing we can relate to God like this. We're believing in Jesus, what Jesus has done in this way. We've rediscovered something of the grace of God's. And as they believed, and they declared this faith, there was persecution that came. And Marie Durand, along with a lot of others, were imprisoned in a tower in France, the Tower of Constance. And in fact, in many senses, she wasn't imprisoned. She was put in this tower and told, actually, you can leave whenever you like. Only you need to tell us that you recant. That you've given up this, what they thought of this wrong, false theology that you've gone with. Tell us that and you can go. She stayed there 38 years before finally they, something changed and they released them all. I'm reminded of those words in Hebrews 11. Some, where is it? Some, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. She understood. She was not held there by anything other than the fact that she knew her God. And she said, he's worth everything. I couldn't turn away, even for my freedom. I couldn't turn away regardless I'm staying here. She stayed there 38 years. And we could say, well, why didn't something happen that would cause her to have been released early or anything like that? She stood up for God. Shouldn't God have come through in some way? His grace was sufficient. His grace was sufficient. She lived for him in that tower, helping the others who were there for 38 years. We may not understand the answer all the time, and yet we know his grace is sufficient. And ultimately we know he is worth it. So we see the writer to the Hebrews has given this great exhortation to live by faith. He is He's, ex- he's made example of so many throughout Scripture. Ultimately, he's exhorting us to trust God, to trust who he is, who he says he is, to know him, to know that he is faithful, he is good, that he does work in all things for the good of those who love him, and fundamentally to know that he knows what that looks like better than I do. 
so key for us to get hold of that God knows what is best so much more than we do. He knows best and he loves you. And he wants to lead us all on an adventure of faith. It's not comfortable. It's better. It's exciting. It's not trouble-free. We can face, and, and I don't want to belittle anything that anyone is facing. I'm recognizing there is horrible things that people face. But he is worth it. We're living for him, for these great plans and purposes of God. And he closes this chapter with these wonderful words. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. We've been called into something. We've been brought into the same journey, the same story. Yet the wondrous thing is now, we can look back and see Jesus has come. Jesus has come, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen again, Jesus is exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. And so in a sense, how much more? In the light of the coming of the King of Kings, in the light of the work of the salvation on the cross and his resurrection, we can look and see, my God loves me. My God is wonderful. What a privilege to be caught up into his plans and purposes. And so we live by faith, trusting God that he knows what's best for us, that he is faithful, that he does love us. The light of the truth we see in 1 John 4 verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We see ultimately the faithfulness and love and plan of God laid bare at the cross. So even more we can say, I believe God. I'm going to run this race. He is worth it, whatever. And to echo Paul again in 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I've believed. I know him. The answer is never just, I need to try harder to kind of cope with the situation. I need to see my God more clearly. I need to see him. Because he calls us on this adventure of faith. He calls us to fix our eyes on him. As we head ultimately for our eternal home, which is utterly beyond what we can imagine. But how do we respond? I want to know my God more. I want to see him more clearly day by day. This glorious truth, he is worth it. He's worth living for. He's worth trusting for in situations where we're looking for him to break in. Ultimately, he's worth dying for. He's worthy of our trust. He is faithful and good. We sang that song a couple of times earlier. Our response, God, be thou my vision. Be thou my vision. Would you fill my gaze with you? Not be all else. But recognizing we're in a battle. Be thou my breastplate, my sword for the fight. But riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Nothing else matters. It's all him. 
Because ultimately as well, we know the end. High King of Heaven, when battle is done. Grant heaven's joy to me, bright heaven's sun. That's a different verse, isn't it? Anyway, we know the end. Let's stand, let's pray together.